It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney. The real app performance has been the U.S. corporate high yield. Are the companies lean enough? Have they trimmed all the fat? The semiconductor business is a really cyclical business. Breaking market headlines and corporate news from across the globe. Do investors like the M&A that we've seen? These are two big time blue chip companies. The window between the peak and cut changing super fast. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney. On Bloomberg Radio. On today's Bloomberg Intelligence Show, we dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we're going to provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we'll talk Tesla and how the company remains the world's most valuable automaker. Plus, our conversation with Rockwell Automation CEO Blake Moritz. But first... Another week of earnings and another dismal forecast, this time from the likes of UPS. The company posting disappointing fourth quarter earnings and providing 2024 guidance that missed the mark. For more on this, co-host John Tucker and I spoke with Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Transport, Logistics and Shipping Analyst Lee Klaskow. I first asked him about why the results were so disappointing. They're really just reeling from the impact from um, the labor negotiations they had last year. So running up ahead of those negotiations, a lot of shippers were like, you know something, I'm not going to use use UPS because I might want to use one of their competitors like FedEx or even the Postal Service because I don't know if my stuff is going to be able to get where it needs to go on time. So a lot of that diverted freight, you know, is kind of deleveraging effect on the network, which really weighs on margins. Um, And then, you know, they had the they had the negotiations, they have a contract in place, which is fantastic for uh, UPS and also for the Teamsters, you know, but a lot of the costs, the initial costs of that new contract are in year one. Uh, and so that's like a real big hit to margins. That coupled with the fact it's taking some time for them to win back some of that share. Management noted that they've won back about 60% of that share. Uh, It's going to take time for them to get that share back to where it needs to be. And again, these are are networks. And and when you're talking about freight transportation, it's all about building density. Because the more stuff you can deliver at the same time, you know, the better the margins are. Uh, And that's what they're really working through right now. and, you know, and, and I, what I thought was kind of one of the more interesting little tidbits is that they think that this year that the small package volume uh, from an industry standpoint is only going to increase like 1%, uh, which to me I thought was, was a, a little pessimistic. Um, but, you know, all in all, they're really dealing with tepid, tepid demand. Uh, they're dealing with rising costs. And, you know, 
they're obviously taking those costs pretty seriously as, as you know, they're laying off or planning to lay off uh, or reduce heads, however nicely you want to say it, 12,000 people. Uh, and then also they're looking to get, uh, they're, they're putting their brokerage business, which is called Coyote, uh, under a strategic review. Coyote is the third largest uh, freight broker out there. So um, one of the largest publicly traded ones are C.H. Uh, uh, Robinson. Uh, people might not know that, may, may, may know that name. Also, RxO is another pure play uh, brokerage, is Landstar. Uh, there's a couple private ones. A lot of large companies um, like J.B. Hunt have their own brokerage business in-house. You get, um, uh, so, uh, sorry for a series of stupid questions, but this sure. is who you're talking to. Uh, <laughs> what is a freight, what's, what's their role on? What do they do, a freight brokerage? So it's, they're pretty much get together buyers and sellers of, of freight. So if you think about it, so if you're a shipper and you have a load that you need to get from point A to point B, you might use a broker to find a truck to carry that load. And uh, the broker kind of makes a spread in between what they're charging the shipper and what they're paying the trucking company. What's happened is, you know, it's a very cyclical business. Uh, there's, there's, there's great highs and kind of depressing lows, and margins can be very volatile uh, during the cycle. So this, this just to back up, this brokerage that they own that they're now getting rid of, they, you could have gone to them and they could have picked a shipper other than you know, the, the, the company that owns them, uh, UPS. Yeah, so, you know, so UPS could potentially use its own in-house brokerage to move a trailer load of freight between two of their sorting facilities. Uh, or if you're Walmart and, you know, you have an extra load that you need to get from your DC to, you know, your uh, Spring Lake Walmart. I don't think there's a Spring <laughs> a Walmart in Spring Lake. Brick <laughs> you know, you might you might use them because either the 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 carriers that you're contracted with um, don't have the capacity, or you're trying to take advantage of cheap rates in the spot market. And right now, truckload rates are extremely cheap. They've been bouncing along the bottom for quite some time, uh, and so shippers might like to to leverage that. You know, intermodal uh, is an example. So you know, the inter intermodal space, which is railroads. Um, you know, that's when you see like uh, two containers on top of a, a railroad, um, you know, they're facing increased competition because of the loose conditions that are in the spot market. Uh, and a lot of those shippers might use brokerage to try to find a carrier to carry their loads. Our thanks to Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Transport Logistics and Shipping Analyst, Lee Clasco. Let's turn now to Boeing, posting fourth quarter earnings, cash flow, and revenue that surpassed analyst expectations. But the plane maker foregoed guidance for 2024 as it faces lapses in safety. To help recap the earnings, co-host Emily Grafeo and I spoke with Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst George Ferguson. He began the conversation by discussing his key takeaways from fourth quarter earnings. I thought the quarter's numbers looked yeah, you know, pretty much in line with what we expected, maybe a little bit better commercial airplane. Uh, some of the cash flow generation was a little bit better, a lot of it from deposits. Uh, you know, that they're getting from airplanes as they move through production. So I wouldn't call that sort of, I mean, it's good cash flow, but I wouldn't call it super high quality, right? Like when you're generating a lot of cash from your core operations, uh, their, uh, their global services business uh, had some very nice margins, uh, even better than we expected. Uh, and that's been a star performer. It's good to see that holding up. Um, but yeah, I think the real story here is about uh, going forward, how they, how they, you know, nip these quality problems in the bud, and so I, I do think that uh, as I think about it more, uh, sort of pulling back guidance, 
I think that indicates that management is ready to do whatever it takes to get these quality problems in hand. Uh, and so, you know, my sense is maybe they think, look, we, we, you know, we may not want to be holding to an exact number of airplanes in 2024 as we dig through our manufacturing process and through the supply chain processes and make sure that we're getting a quality airplane out the door every single time. So if pulling guidance is all about that and the efforts around that and what it's going to take uh, and focusing again on quality over just management management metrics, I think that could be a very, very good sign. You know, the, again, the management team is crystal focused on this is what we have to do. How different is that than what the company has already been doing for the last few years? Were they not as focused on quality and safety beforehand? Like how much of this is a, a truly a, a turnaround and a change for Boeing? So I think the, I think the business has just materially changed. I was at an aerospace defense conference last week, uh, and uh, you know I didn't need the conference to tell me this, but I was surprised that it was persistent. And that and what I heard from people at the conference over and over again is that uh, finding employees and employee turnover is still a problem in this industry. It's still a problem. Now I, you know I think that the higher you up in the tiers, like a Boeing or an RTX or a GE, it's easier to retain employees because you provide great benefit packages, everybody wants to be there, but even they have had a lot of turnover. And so I think pre-pandemic, you could you could p- potentially fall back on the thought in, in the manufacturing process of Boeing that you had very, very seasoned folks on the line that have been well-trained, seen years in and years out of the business, and we're always gonna get it done right. But I think with the amount of turnover they've had, they really need to go back and rethink, uh, you know, how they supervise the line, how they train the employees, and they have to they have to create more stability by investing in those people. And so I think this business has materially changed since the pandemic. I will also say that, that you know, Boeing has been sort of pushing this outsourcing of the business. Again, they were doing this pre-pandemic, and this is all about it's, you know they want to sort of turn it into the auto industry where you outsource the subcomponents, you bring it together in Renton, and you put together an airplane, and that's turned the supply chain into a much bigger you know portion of of what you're doing uh and and it's global as well right you're making some of these doors in malaysia things are coming from all over the world into renton to turn into an airplane and i think that's making it more difficult to keep track of the supply chain and the quality in the supply chain and what folks are doing down at those factories and so i think it's materially changed and that that's the problem so george and that sounds like a problem to me that was probably decades in the making i.e you know, going more to subcontractors and, 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 you know, as part of globalization, perhaps. Um, is is there a, a sense that this is a really a long-term fix that investors should not expect anything months? Maybe it's going to take years here. Well, so, I mean, not, I don't think they're going to stop production. Um, I do think they're going to dig through the supply chain, uh, you know, sort of hopefully methodically and, and figure out where there could be uh, sources of problem. But I, I think what it means is that you're just not going to see potentially the margin and the cash flow out of this business that you saw pre-pandemic for years while they spend more money 
and more time and invest in people and go down and make sure that everything works. Some stuff may need to be reconsolidated back at sub-tier suppliers or even at Boeing if they can't get comfortable that they're going to get the quality out of it. I think it, I think it drags, like I said, an earnings cash generation well, for George, years from now. At the same time, it, what, I, what I hear from you and from others in the airline business is there's a big demand for new aircraft out there. So how do they balance maybe slowing down the line a little bit with the fact that their customers need more and more of their product? So I think it I think it hurts. I think you'd like to be breaking to higher build rates now. Airbus will, and Airbus will get market share. But I think in the long term, if you don't if you don't fix the quality problem here, you'll lose long term share uh, and competitiveness, and that and that would be really really bad. What does this mean for Boeing's stock price? Because look, compare it to Airbus, it's underperforming on a year basis, Boeing versus Airbus. So is this enough to bring investors new money into uh, Boeing? Or is Airbus still going to be the outperformer here? So I mean, I think, you know, Boeing investors are going to have to take the long view here, right? Because um, again, I, I don't see any quick fix, you know, quick leaping to much higher build rates, much better cash generation, because I think they need to invest back in their business. Airbus doesn't apparently have this problem. I think more of the supply chain is still in-house at Airbus, or at least better controlled. And so I think you're going to see that Airbus is going to perform fundamentally better here. Thanks to Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst George Ferguson. Coming up, why Tesla's profit margin may deserve more appreciation than it's actually getting. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. And this is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Let's turn now to Tesla, whose stock has tumbled so far this year as the auto industry warns of plunging EV demand and Wall Street analysts scale back on expectations. Co-host Emily Garfeo joined me as we spoke with Bloomberg News Editor-in-Chief Emeritus Matt Winkler on this. He discussed why Tesla's profit margin deserves more appreciation than it's getting. After losing 50% of shareholder worth since November 2021, Tesla still is, surprise, surprise, uh, the 10th most valuable company, and it has the greatest market capitalization of uh, any maker of cars and trucks in the world. And there's a reason for that why that is so today. And it's because Tesla's margins of profit, profit margins, are superior to any automaker, um, including, by the way, uh, you could say its most interesting competitor, BYD from China, ah, okay. which, uh, if you look at the last quarter, became the global sales leader for yep. zero emission vehicles, which, of course, is the Tesla space, which it has owned. And um, with all of that, with all of that, if you like, uh, bad news, Tesla still is um, holding its value. And I will say this, that if you looked at BYD over the past six months, uh, it's actually trading at its low. Um, it's declined significantly since August. Uh, so if there was, if you like, a reevaluation in the market 
Um, if anything, Tesla is more than holding its own. And if anything, BYD is depreciating. Um, and the rest of the auto industry, of course, doesn't have anything close to the yep. profit margins of Tesla. So that's the story. I kind of like it only because after last week, everybody seemed to be going in one direction. <laughs> uh, if you read the narrative, the prevailing narrative was, um, you know, Tesla's days are numbered. Um, not so fast. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So why are people overlooking this? And is the fact that Tesla is down more than 50% from its all-time high, does that mean to you that this uh, profitability is actually not priced in yet? Tesla has been a volatile stock. Um, and remember, we're talking about an adolescent here. It went public <laughs> in 2010. And uh, it's had many periods like this one where uh, – it has retreated significantly only to rebound uh, with greater uh, fervor. Um, you've seen that time and again. You know, we're likely to see it again. But here's an example. If you were to go right now to the, uh, say, Fortune magazine, most admired companies, um, Tesla isn't there. Now think about that for a second. This is a company that has completely transformed the auto industry as we know it. It has essentially convince people that zero emission vehicles are the future and even the very traditional auto giants it competes against have conceded that they have to make EVs and you would have thought that would be in and of itself significant <laughs> enough to be admired but no it's not there so there's a lot of uh, if you will noise that's associated mm -hmm. with Tesla because of its co-founder Elon mm -hmm. Musk and often the noise obscures the signal mm -hmm. which is the vehicle itself. Hey Matt I know you've been a longtime owner of the Tesla auto automobile so you follow this industry probably as close as anyone just because I, I suspect it's always been of, of interest to you. I think the issue now for uh, investors not just for Tesla investors is what is the ultimate demand for EVs out there and now there's a question we saw Ford pull back their production of the Ford F-150 Lightning, which I've test driven. It is an awesome vehicle at $94,000 or better be. Um, what is your sense as to the demand picture for electric vehicles in this country? Okay, so you're quite right. Uh, I do own a Tesla Model S. I've never owned the shares for obvious reasons because it would be a conflict of interest and Bloomberg being Bloomberg. Yes. We're, we're very careful about such things. Yes. Uh, but I am at the 100000 uh, threshold oh, on nice. my uh, Tesla oh. and uh, there's no sign of any kind of deterioration and I would say that many people who write about Tesla probably don't have the experience of the people who own Teslas and if you ask people who own Teslas uh, pretty much the satisfaction there is right near the yeah. top and yeah. actually Consumer Reports bears that out so I would say that that um, the demand for EVs is only going to increase there was recently a story on Bloomberg about um, more 
competition in California, which has been the state that. Yep. that has led. But that's California. It's like a different country, let's be honest. And <laughs> in there, it's a case of, yeah, there are more people uh, buying EVs, yep. and they're not buying as uh, just Teslas anymore. Tesla had a 70% market share, and now it's down to 60-something percent. Yep. But Tesla's still growing, and that's the whole point, is that the pie is getting bigger, and Tesla's piece of the pie is going to get well, bigger some, as well. Some people say, I want to buy a Tesla. I don't want to buy an EV. I, you know, it's like I want to buy a Tesla because it's a te Tesla because it's such a cool car, cool right. brand. Mm -hmm. But I'm not, I'm not buying it because, per se because it's an EV. Yeah, and look, here's the thing. Tesla makes only zero-emission vehicles. It's competing against companies outside of BYD uh, and a handful of others. Uh, that make all these other uh, fossil fuel machines. That's a very complicated equation, which is why the profitability in the auto industry is inferior compared yep. to Tesla. Tesla only has to focus on one thing. And so far, if you look at it, it's done very well. You know, first there was the Model S, and then there was the Model X, and then there's the Model uh, Y, uh, you know, the Model 3. All of these vehicles actually have made Tesla very formidable. Uh, company and there's more to come. I mean, the reason why the stock fell as much as it did is because Elon Musk actually said we're going to take a pause, so to speak, to get an even cheaper EV model in front of people uh, in the years to come. What do you think that China's situation is for Elon Musk from a competitive standpoint, selling those Teslas into China vis-a-vis -vis BYD and some of the other Chinese manufacturers? Look, the vehicle speaks for itself and to the extent that consumers make that choice, it's a good thing for Tesla to be in China. Our thanks to Bloomberg News Editor-in-Chief Emeritus, Matt Winkler. Amazon.com abandoning its planned $1.4 billion acquisition of Roomba, maker iRobot. Now, this comes after a clash with European Union regulators who had threatened to block that deal. Co-host Molly Smith and I spoke about this and the latest in antitrust enforcement with Bloomberg Intelligence senior litigation antitrust analyst Jennifer Ree. I first asked Jennifer if she was surprised the deal between Amazon and iRobot fell apart. It wasn't at all because back in July, the EU said, we have concerns about this deal. Okay. I mean, they're concerned about competition in the market for robot vacuums. <laughs> I think there's this idea that antitrust is only interested in really big deals. But at the end of the day, no matter how small the business is or how few consumers it might impact, if there's an antitrust problem, they still have concerns. And it's still an illegal deal in the eyes of regulators. So here... They said in a couple different countries in Europe that Amazon was a particularly important um, huh. distributor for robot vacuums and they could foreclose competitors. I mean, but Amazon's in the market for everything, obviously, not just, <laughs> you know, the, the robo vacuum market. So right. I mean, surely there must be other real competitors out there that have a more narrowed focus on the robo vacuum <laughs> space than Amazon. Well, likely, and that's probably what they argued. But the thing is, the European Commission said, but this is a particularly important channel because you won't only own the vacuum, but you're going to own distribution, an important distribution. But it's like a vertical acquisition, right? It's an integration that they had a problem with because that would give them the ability to foreclose some of these other smaller makers of these vacuums that need to sell on Amazon. Um, and apparently, in some countries, there wasn't enough other competition. So they had some concerns. Um, mm. There could have been a remedy offered, but the company decided not to do that. So it was kind of a stalemate. Um, and honestly, they were going to get sued in the U.S. Really? I mean, that's what I think, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like this sets like a bit of a tone maybe for, I, I would think there's got to be other similar consumer electronics companies where Amazon is a big competitor. That right. like, it, I mean, does this set some kind of a standard maybe that this could be an issue going forward in the antitrust world? 
Well, I think what it tells you in terms of mergers, I think it'll tell you that anytime these big tech platforms, particularly Amazon, try to continue to expand their businesses this way through mergers, they're going to have trouble. They're going to face hurdles in the EU, UK, US. The, the UK didn't have too many problems with this one. But I think it does tell us something about the FTC's lawsuit. You know, they have now this ongoing lawsuit against Amazon, and they're looking at all these different businesses where that compete with Amazon but also sell on the marketplace and have some concerns about it. So, you know, some of the concept that went into the concerns here will be part of that lawsuit in the US. We're a long way away from an outcome there. That's pretty new. But it's pending. Jen, when you when you talk to some of your friends in the business, the, the <laughs> MA attorneys out there, is the feeling like almost it really is different out there. It is really appreciably harder to get anything approved these days. Oh, Paul, absolutely. It, it is so much harder. There's so much more scrutiny. It takes longer. And that we're seeing that in the merger agreements. They are different than they were five years ago. There are much bigger breakup fees for sellers because they're concerned about the, the investigation, which can take a year. They're concerned about a lawsuit. You have much longer end dates. I mean, it used to be the end date of a year seemed like a really long end date. Now we're looking at like two years in some of these agreements wow. because they know they might have to go to litigation. Um, so yeah, there's a big difference right now. And is it is that a sense that this is a short-term reflection of who's in the White House? Or is that just a sense that I don't know, Congress or society is anti-big deal or? It's more about who's in the White House because it's about the appointments at the FTC and DOJ making okay. these antitrust decisions, right? So it just happens that we have two people making decisions at the DOJ and FTC that are particularly activist, particularly progressive in this area, believe antitrust enforcement's been way too lax for years and they're trying to change things. Are these people's jobs potentially at risk if um, if Biden doesn't win re-election? Absolutely. Okay. 100%. And right. what would the potential uh, other candidates' view on antitrust be? <laughs> <laughs> so the interesting thing is that it really depends on who's appointed. So let's just say the next president is Republican, right? Trump or somebody else. Right now, the Republicans are kind of a mixed bag. I mean, it used to be you could always think they're going to be way more business friendly. They're going to appreciate the efficiencies that come from consolidation, mm -hmm. right? But now you kind of have this populist side of the Republican Party, and some of the people in that group also believe we need to crack down on antitrust, like sort of the Josh Hawley's of the world. So I think if, if you get a Republican, it's going to depend exactly on who they put as the chief of antitrust at DOJ and who the commissioners are that get appointed at the FTC. Our thanks to Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Reed. Coming up on the program, we're going to get the latest on earnings from Rockwell Automation directly from the company's CEO. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BI Go on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Rockwell Automation posting first quarter profit that missed analyst expectations. So for more, Paul and I spoke with Rockwell CEO Blake Moret. We discussed the state of American manufacturing and the use of automation and technology. I first asked him why the street were so disappointed in his numbers. Well, I think they did hear the message of continued underlying demand remaining strong, but we had a shipment miss in the quarter. A lot of that was execution, 
And we look at that as timing for shipments that will come back in the year. You know, we had a very strong growth last year of uh, 17% top line, 28% adjusted EPS. This is a bit of a reset year as we get done shipping off that older backlog that piled up as a result of supply chain shortages and go back to booking and billing incoming new orders. And so we're seeing lower growth in the year with some growing pains, but uh, the underlying demand remains pretty strong. That's kind of where I want to go, Blake. Tell us who your customers are and what are your customers telling you these days? We may be the most pervasive technology in American manufacturing. So everything from automotive and battery manufacturing to warehouse automation, food and beverage, life sciences, uh, energy, both traditional fossil fuel as well as renewables. Across that whole spectrum, our technology, our hardware and our software and our services are pretty prevalent. So when do you know, Blake, if it's still the supply chain issues that you're still working through versus just weaker demand? Like, do you even do you even know when that moment shifts? Well, so we had an encouraging quarter in the demand side in that in Q1, so the quarter mm-hmm. ended uh, in December, we did see double-digit sequential growth in orders off of the trough in our fiscal year, uh, our fiscal Q4 last year. And those orders increases have continued into January. So that's a very positive sign. Now, a lot of our distributors, and most of our business does go through electrical distributors, they had higher inventory than they wanted. And we expect in the coming couple of months that that inventory gets to more of a normal level so that their orders to us reflect the strong underlying demand from machine builders and end users. Blake, how how much lead time do you have in your business? What's your order book and kind of how much how much lead time do you really have? So so the the product business, which is the majority of our business, those lead times are typically days and weeks in a normal period. And part of our challenge in Q1 was returning all of our products to those fast lead times. But in a normal um, you know, environment, we get an order and it either gets shipped that day off our distributor shelf, or we're able to make it and ship it within days or a few weeks for those products. So are you an early cycle economic read? Is that fair to say? You know, we certainly have exposure early in the cycle, mm-hmm. but the so-called late cycle is also an important part of our business. Um, whether you're talking about the traditional process industries mm-hmm. or life sciences, we've got pretty broad exposure early, mid and late cycle. Although I have to say with the supply chain backlog that we had in 2022 and 23, with the distributor overstock that we're working through now, it's hard to pin a particular point in this traditional cycle on this time. Well, also because you're exposed to sort of all the structural changes too, like Infrastructure Act, the CHIPS Act, uh, the IRA. So that's a structural shift, even though you're still cyclical. I can imagine that being quite confusing. So based on where you are and all the different cycles, how are we doing? Like, how's the global economy doing? You know, um, particularly in our home market in the U.S., where we have the largest market share, we see continued strong underlying demand. So we're expecting our orders to be up 
um, low, you know, low single digits, and uh, we've guided to one point up in terms of organic shipments. But that underlying demand, I think, remains strong. And one of the key indicators for me is continued low unemployment rates in our uh, most important markets. So, uh, Blake, I'm looking at the PGEO function on the Bloomberg terminal, and I can see just by geography, looking at your revenue, again, 60% roughly of your revenue is North America. So give us a sense of kind of North America versus rest of the world. What are you guys seeing? North America is the strongest market. Um, yeah. China has uh, significant problems right now, and uh, Europe um, still dealing with uh, some of their structural issues. A lot of the business we get in Europe is actually for export back to North America from the machine builders over there. But uh, we expect for this year, uh, North America is going to be the strongest market. And that's good for us because we've got home field advantage. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. It feels like a U.S. exceptionalism conversation, right? <laughs> yeah. Like like yet again. Um, so if we just go macro them for a minute, if the Fed cuts rates in, in May, what does that do? Like if you're already seeing U.S. Um, hold up pretty well, does that accelerate the economy from where you stand? I think that could uh, um, help some of the largest CapEx projects, which, you know, we get some business from, but we're not as much of a CapEx play as you know, some other names and that were pretty balanced between CapEx as well as OpEx uh, in terms of improvements, additional efficiency in existing facilities as well. So I don't know that interest rates are our biggest indicator. As I said, for the economy, I look at unemployment and um, you know, I look at the, uh, the amount of automation investment, both for new greenfields as well as uh, adding efficiency and resilience in existing facilities. Um, Blake, just explain to us kind of what your competitive marketplace looks like. Where are you guys versus your competitors? Who do you compete against and, and how is that changing? So our big competitors are, are mostly the European uh, conglomerates, really. It's uh, Siemens, Schneider, mm. ABV, um, in certain narrow uh, parts of the market, Honeywell and Emerson here in the U.S., um, we're really, you know, we distinguish ourselves by having a very balanced exposure from discrete applications like automotive to hybrid applications like food and beverage and life sciences to continuous process applications like energy and mining and so on. Hey, Blake, to that point, Siemens Energy, uh, part of Siemens, had just been it really hurt by offshore wind uh, here in the U.S. I should say not owned by Siemens, but uh, Siemens owns a stake in Siemens Energy. How, what's your view on the energy green transition build out right mm. now? Are you losing money? Are you making money? What does your order book look like? It's still early innings, uh, but we're seeing good business as a result of energy transition. And I would bucket it in three different ways. I'd look at first, the decarbonization of the traditional uh, oil and gas companies. So carbon capture projects. Uh, we've talked about the work we're doing 
with Occidental and their uh, direct air capture projects, the 1.5 initiative. It's renewables. Uh, and again, uh, we've talked publicly about what we're doing with companies like First Solar in creating you know, PV panels. And then it's the thing that we've been doing for our entire history, and that's driving efficiency across all manufacturing. And those are all good applications for us. You know, there's some relatively nascent uh, areas like hydrogen that are uh, sources of optimism. But, you know, I would put them in those three main areas. Hey, Blake, I'm looking at the ANR function on the Bloomberg terminal. It shows me that there are 11 Wall Street analysts buys on your stock, 12 holds and five sells. So pretty mixed across the board. What's the message that you bring to your investors into the marketplace? that the underlying demand rate remains strong, that we really have a unique position among all of those competitors and among the niche competitors. I like the hand we have. And as you know, manufacturing picks up and resets from the period of supply chain shortages, we're in a great spot to accelerate our profitable growth. Before we end here, we have like, I don't know, 90 seconds left. You mentioned jobs quite a few times. What is your assessment of the labor market? Hard to get? You're going to keep labor, paying more? What do you see? You know, I think in manufacturing um, workforce, there's still a lot of unfilled jobs. And we think that, you know, having a skilled workforce is absolutely essential for manufacturers to compete, but it's augmented with the kind of technology that we offer. So it's really that winning hand of having an enabled, and engaged workforce and we do a lot to help with workforce development and it's also given them so-called superpowers with the technology that we offer superpowers can you find people for your type of work you know um, certain jobs uh, it takes longer than in others we're actually helping uh, with uh, workforce development programs that we offer in-house and then provide labor particularly focused towards technician level jobs for manufacturers in America through our hmm. Academy of Advanced Manufacturing. Thanks very much to Rockwell Automation CEO, Blake Moret. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.